0: I saw Simon a week later. Yeah, and oh yeah. boy, <laughs> I would have—I I, would have loved to have been a fly on the wall for that yeah. conversation. But of course, I'm sure you were really nice about it. Well, um, yes and no. I <laughs> was. I, I believe in killing him with kindness. And so I had a week to prepare. So um, there there was a fly on the wall because there was a camera there and they actually aired every last word of this interaction. And I told Simon that I could forgive him because I've been forgiven so much and that if Jesus could forgive me for all of my wrongs, I could extend that same grace. And it was the most powerful moment of my life to have him apologize, to say that he was humbled and to give me a big hug and then to send me to the top 24. It was perfect. Gospel singer Mandisa Hundley was one of the 12 finalists on American Idol. When she met with judges Simon Cowell, Paula Abdul, and Randy Jackson to find out if she had advanced to the next round of competition, she received a stinging comment from Simon. Eyeing Mandisa, who was heavyset, Simon asked, do we have a bigger stage this year? Well, later when Mandisa entered the room to learn the judge's decision, she looked right at Simon and said, Simon, a lot of people want me to say a lot of things to you, but this is what I want to say. Yes, you hurt me and I cried and it was painful, but I want you to know that I have forgiven you and that you do not need someone to apologize in order to forgive somebody. And I figure that if Jesus could die so that all my sins could be forgiven. I can certainly extend the same grace to you. I wanted you to know that. Simon did go on to apologize to Mandisa and then hugged her. And the singer then discovered that she had advanced to the next round. This is a powerful example of reconciliation, which we learned last week is a ministry that God has given his children. God has given to us. The ministry of reconciliation. And this means that God has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Last week we had the opportunity to look at these amazing, life changing words of reconciliation in 2nd Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 21, with verse 17 highlighting what happens when someone comes to Christ. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone. The new is here. When a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ, they are made new. We're given eternal life instead of eternal death. We are adopted as sons and daughters. We become children of God. We have a relationship with God the Father. The Holy Spirit comes to dwell within us since we've received Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord of our lives. And in this transaction of regeneration, God takes all of our sin And he places it upon Jesus. And then he takes the righteousness of God and he places it upon us. That's what verse 21 teaches. That God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. Therefore, as verse 17 says, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone the new has come. Now the word concile means to bring together. And when we add the prefix re to that, reconcile, it means to bring together again. And specifically here, bring together again that which is incompatible. See, a person could counsel all they want. They could have meeting after meeting. They could try to mediate to the end of the earth, but we are just too incompatible. Sin separates us from a holy and a perfect God. And then Jesus came along, and he takes away that old sinful self, and he replaces it with the new justified person. So now it's just as if in Christ Jesus that I'd never sinned verse 18 says all this is from god who reconciled us to himself through christ see god is the initiator god is the one who's brought this all about and then god has given us the ministry of reconciliation which yes is proclaiming the message of the great reconciler Jesus and part of this ministry is also to restore relationships with others because that's part of the reconciliation process and look at what verse 19 says that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ not counting people's sins against them and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation, given us this ministry and this message of reconciliation, which, by the way, is exactly what Mandisa did as we witnessed today in our opening illustration. Now, she could have made the criticism of her weight all about herself. She could have stated that Simon was weight-shaming or fat-shaming her. She could have even pulled out the race card and turned it into a racial issue because she is black. And Simon Cowell is white. And he was exerting his white privilege or his white supremacy there. But she didn't do that. She could have also made it all about sexual identity. Because she is a woman. And Simon, of course, is a man. And being in a position of authority and being part of the good old boys network and in a patriarchal world and all those stuff, she could have simply said he was shaming her as a woman. But Mandisa didn't do any of that. She didn't take any of those available avenues. Instead, she acknowledged the personal pain that she had experienced from the incident and the pressure that she was receiving from a lot of people to even the score with Simon through some kind of harsh treatment of him. But she didn't respond in kind. What did Mandisa do? She turned to the gospel The message of Jesus that God had forgiven her and thus that she could forgive Simon. It wasn't her doing it. It was Christ in her. And also it was God who made a way for Simon and Mandisa's relationship to be reconciled. Reconciliation is first of all with God. That's where the reconciliation takes place. But it also includes others. And it's always through God which is what makes Mandisa's story so Profound. Verse 20 tells us here, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We're God's representatives to this world as if this is it. God is using us to share the good news. Now let's go to verse one in chapter six. As God's coworkers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain co-laborers. We have all the blessings and all the benefits of God's fellow workers. We have all the perks, if you will, because we are saved by grace. We're given a life and a ministry that we do not deserve. So we are not to receive God's grace in vain. Now when someone is vain, they believe that everything in life is about them. And no one else gets to have all these same benefits because they're reserved for them. But if we are adopted sons and daughters with all of these newfound privileges and blessings of adoption we can't live like that if we we do that we're wasting the opportunities in this world that god has given to us you know in my teen and young adult years there was a very famous football coach of the dallas cowboys named tom landry he was considered by many to be a football genius who could map out a game plan of plays to call in every potential scenario that could occur in a game that would make his teams highly successful. Well, early on in his coaching career at Dallas, the Cowboys drafted an accomplished quarterback, an officer at the Naval Academy, a man who was a Christian and was used to calling his own plays, was used to being a leader and calling his own shots. Well, under Coach Landry, Roger Staubach had the opportunity to learn from one of the greatest play callers in the history of the NFL. But in the early portion of Roger Staubach's career, he resisted that. In fact, there were many times when he called his own plays. Finally, a friend challenged him to trust his coach. And the results from that point on spoke for themselves. Four Super Bowl appearances in the back half of his career, with a number of them being victories. Now, in the first half of his career, Roger Staubach wasn't taking opportunities of the blessings, or you could say in that sense, the grace that had been given unto him. He was doing his own thing. He was taking the opportunities before him in vain. As verse 1 says in chapter 6, "...as co-laborers with God." We're not to receive in vain God's grace. As if we have no obligation to help anybody else in this world experience the very same grace that we have received. In fact, look at what verse 2 says. For he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you. In the day of salvation, I helped you. When you needed me. I was there for you when you needed my help, God says. I came through for you. I was there. My grace was poured out to you. My favor is upon you. And I tell you now, he says, is the time of God's favor. Now is the time of the day, or the day of salvation. You know, there's never been a better time, never been a more important time to be God's ambassadors than right now. Remember, We're not called to be political ambassadors for the Democratic Party or the Republican Party. We're not called to be ambassadors for the vaxxers or the anti-vaxxers, you know, the anti-vaccination movement. We're not called to be ambassadors for the pro-gun lobby or to be ambassadors for the anti-gun lobby. We're not called to be ambassadors for the military-industrial complex or to be ambassadors for the anti-military industrial complex. We're not called to be ambassadors for CNN News or for Fox News. We're not called to be ambassadors for the Green New Deal or to be ambassadors for the anti-Green New Deal. We're not even called to be ambassadors for the pro-Timberwolf hunting movement or the anti-Timberwolf hunting movement. What does verse 20 of chapter 5 tell us? We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us. So we're not to receive the grace of God in vain by turning it into something that it is not. It is the account of God graciously forgiving our sins in Christ Jesus and pointing others to this grace. Now, God has given us the ministry of reconciliation, and this means that God has committed to us the message of reconciliation. And you know, once you've helped someone be free from the weight, the burden, and the guilt of their sin, you can't possibly want to substitute something else for that, like a pro-wolf hunting message or a a political message or a social distancing mask mandate message or some cable network news message or some message about vaccination or against vaccination as being the message. And perhaps the reason so many people are getting all exercised about all these other issues might be because they're actually not telling people about Jesus and they're not walking with people through the process of reconciliation. And here's a question for you. Where have you exerted more time, more energy, and more resources in the past 15 to 18 months? Has it been in telling others about the hope that we have in Jesus? Or has it been about getting bent out of shape about the latest pandemic or political-related issues? See, when we are given the ministry and the message of reconciliation... It means that we are to be reconcilers, like Mandisa from our opening illustration. And let me ask you, is that what you are known for? Or do people know you for your political stances or your environmental stances or where you land on the whole pandemic situation? Are you known for hot buttons or are you known for the good news of Jesus Christ? Now, as we move on and look at verses 3 through 13, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, we learn that the ministry of reconciliation involves living the truth. Look at verse 3. We put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. Now, I have to tell you, I, I struggle a little bit with the NIV's translation of that Greek word there, prospekain, which, means, which, which they translate as stumbling block here. Part of the reason I struggle with that is because in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, Paul has a very famous verse there where he says that we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. The problem is that word stumbling block there in verse 23 is the Greek word scandalon, And this is where we get our word scandal from. The preaching of Jesus, he says, is scandalous to the Jews. But here in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3, it's translated as scandalous or, or stumbling block, but it's the word prospecane. And it actually means occasion for taking offense or occasion for making a person misstep. And I think a better translation would be, I gave no one a cause for offense. Now, the very reason that Paul did not create any offense is because he did not want to discredit the ministry in any way. He didn't want to discredit the gospel of Jesus Christ in any way, shape, or form. Look back with me to the book of 1 Corinthians for a moment, and we'll see the efforts that Paul had gone through. In chapter 9, verses 1 through 15, it reads, "'Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord?' Are you not the result of my work in the Lord, even though I may not be an apostle to others? Surely I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Paul's obviously being criticized that he's not a true apostle and these kinds of things, so he's defending himself, but you're, you're a representation of me being a, a sent one, an apostle, a messenger of the Lord. Verse three, this is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas, which is Peter, the apostle Peter? Or is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right to not work for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink the milk? Do I say this merely on human authority? Doesn't the law say the same thing, for it is written in the law of Moses? Do not muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain. It is, it is, is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us because whoever plows and threshes should be able to do so in hope of sharing in the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have the right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple and that those who serve at the altar share in what is offered at the altar? In the same way the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel, but I have not used any of these rights, and I hope, and, and I am not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me. Now, Paul went to Corinth, and he was there for a year and a half, 18 months, and there were fellow missionaries with him there, and he worked as a tent maker not to be a burden to the church, and he didn't want to discredit the gospel in any way, even though it was his right to earn a living through proclaiming the gospel. And look at what he says in verses 19 through 23. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I become all things to all people that by all possible means I might save some. I do all of this, for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Paul's saying, I did everything I could not to put any kind of stumbling block, not to let anyone misstep in any way uh, to discredit the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, we happen to live in a culture right now where giving offense is practically an art form. People are offended if you don't agree with them on everything. People are offended if you don't tell them what they want to hear. They are offended if you do not validate them, no matter how bizarre their belief system may be. People are offended if you even have your own convictions on something. People are offended if you do not drop everything you have going on to pay attention to them. They are offended if you talk to them, and then they're offended if you don't talk to them. People are offended if you shake their hand. Others are offended if you don't shake their hand. To some people, talking to them is interrupting them, while to others, not talking to them means that you're stuck up. If you send a note or an email or a text, you're impersonal. But if you don't try to contact people, you're neglectful we live in a culture right now where offense is literally an art form and this reminds me of a sign that i saw in a restaurant recently we can't please everybody but we try giving offense is practically a staple of life in modern america and it's clearly a requirement of for contemporary politicians but for Christians, we have to exercise caution in how we live our lives to not give people excuses to not believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It truly is devastating to our gospel witnesses, when, our witness, when believers live hypocritically. You know my 30-some years as a pastor? The number one criticism that people like to throw in my face when they find out I'm a pastor is, well, I know a lot of Christians who don't pay their bills. Or I've had business owners say, well, there's Christians in your church that don't pay their bills. And I say, I'm so sorry for that because that shouldn't happen. That's not what the Bible teaches. But I say right away to put a stop to this, I say, well, give me their names. I'll go and talk to them. Maybe we can help them out. Or maybe we can do something about that. It stops it right there. But I ask them, who, who are these people? Because it is devastating to our gospel witness. And the apostle says here, instead, our lives of faith ought to commend us. They should commend us. Does your life do that? Do people find that you're sincere in your faith? That you are the real deal? Do they notice that your life is integrated? What you say, what you believe, what you do are all the same? The apostle says our lives as missionaries to Corinth commend us. Look at verse 4 here in our text. Rather as servants of God we commend ourselves in every way. Every way we commend ourselves to you. We put our lives out before you. Now he's going to describe here for us all kinds of difficulties that he's gone through. And again, because he's defending himself, I want to jump ahead here to chapter 11 for just a moment. Verses, uh, we're going to look at verses 21 to 29, just so you can get a gist. Paul's having to defend himself against these critics And he says to my shame, I admit that we were too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares to boast about, I'm speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have gone often gone without sleep i have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food i have been cold and naked besides everything else i face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches who is weak and i do not feel weak who is led to sin and i do not inwardly burn quite a job description there isn't it well here's what he says in verse 4 Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardship, and distresses. He's talking there about general suffering these, that, that we've persevered. We've shown great endurance in times of trouble, in times of hardship, in times of distress. And Paul isn't glorifying suffering here. He's simply naming it as an unfortunate reality of living in a fallen world. But he says the fact that we have endured all of this for the sake of the gospel commends our faith. And he goes on here. In verse 5, in beatings, imprisonments, and in riots. See, he's talking now about suffering at the hands of other people, beatings, imprisonments, riots, things that a person would never choose to go through. But we've done that for the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that too commends our faith as well. And then it goes on here in verse 5 to say, or excuse me, in verse 5, in and riots, and then it says, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger. Now, all of a sudden, he's talking about chosen suffering, this hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger. And again, as we've already learned, Paul spent 18 months at Corinth uh, as a tent maker he could have taken wages from the church. He didn't because he wanted to advance the gospel in every single way he could there. Then in verse six and seven, in purity, understanding, patience, and kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in sincere love, in truthful speech, and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left. The right hand were generally the offensive weapons. The left hands were for you know the shield of faith. So, so you they, they fought. With, with offensive and defensive weapons. We, we did all of that. And then verse 8 it says, through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report. You know, we had good times, we had bad times. We had people saying good things about us, we had people saying bad things about us. Through genuine, we're, we're you know, some thought we're genuine, others considered us as imposters. And by the way, if you want to be a leader, then you have to learn to not be easily offended because Paul would have quit a long time ago when you just look at this list. And then verses 9 and 10, known yet regarded as unknown, dying yet we live on, beaten yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. Paul says we've lived out our life before you, patiently enduring all kinds of hardships. Is that a hallmark of your life? Have you spiritually uh, endured through suffering? Or do you shy away from that? How do you respond when things get difficult for you? How about when people in ministry get difficult? Troubles often reveal whether or not We are truly living out the faith. Then he goes in verses 11 through 13 and says this, We've spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. We're not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children. Open wide your hearts also. We've been very transparent with you. We have opened our hearts to you. We've displayed our lives before you so that you could examine them. Now you need to do the same toward us, and you have not done that. Clearly, there have been strained relationships between Paul, Silas, Barnabas, Timothy, and the church at Corinth, and uh, they've had to take some hard stands with the Corinthian church. The first letter reveals that. We've even learned that in chapter 1 and into chapter 2, where Paul said that, that he wrote these things with tears in his eyes. He was that heartbroken over the church. He says, we've opened our hearts to you. We've spoken freely. We've expressed our affection for you and now we are asking that you reciprocate that to us as an act of fairness. A.W. Tozer wrote that love is a transforming power. We become what we love. We will grow in the image of what we love most. He says love changes us. It molds us, it shapes us, and transforms us. So what we love is no small matter. It is of critical importance. It will direct our future, and loving inappropriate things will also injure our souls. Love, by God's grace, is within our power to choose. This is why the clarion call of the Bible is love. It's to love God with all our heart, mind, strength, and soul, and it's to love our neighbor as ourselves. And by the way, when our hearts are open to others, when we express affection to others, you know what that does? It opens up doors of ministry for us, doors for the message and the ministry of reconciliation. Let's pray. God, our Father, we thank you today for this incredible biblical text uh, and the text of last week that tell us about the significant ministry and message of reconciliation. People such as ourselves who are here, many of us have experienced, Lord, this great blessing of reconciliation with you and even, God, reconciliation with others in our lives because of you and what you've done in our lives. And, Lord, you have shown us today that it would be so selfish of us to keep this to ourselves or it would be so selfish of us to waste our time on all these other petty concerns of our culture and not let others know the good news of Jesus Christ that can set them free, the grace that can transform their lives. I pray, God, today that our love would be for you and, uh, and God, that our love would, would reveal itself Uh, to others because it's for you. So, Lord, that's our ask today. That is our prayer today, that we would carry on this great ministry and message of reconciliation that you've entrusted to us as your ambassadors. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.